Are there errors in the Bible? Joseph Smith would say that we believed in the Bible as far as it was translated correctly. And then much of his translation work after the Book of Mormon was trying to correct many of those errors that he saw in the Bible. Some of those mistranslations have had amazing, powerful effect thousands of years after the translation were made. Today we're going to look at two such mistranslations and the effect that it had on the way that we look even at things like our covenant path in trying to move forward. Join us today for a very interesting discussion about the history of the Bible and St. Jerome, the translator. And welcome to another Monday morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasure found within his pages. And now, on to the class. Thank you for joining us on this uh, special bonus podcast. It's a special thank you to all of you who have been following uh, the class along during uh, the semester uh, and here at the end of the semester. wanted to put out a couple of additional uh, items that we didn't get a chance to get to in the class. Uh, what we're going to look at uh, today is kind of a fun one. There are two major changes at least that were done during the translation process of the scriptures that have altered dramatically how it is that the scriptures and God are perceived in, uh, in our area, everyday lives. So in order to do this, let's, let's go back and look at uh, the translation process. You recall that uh, when uh, Constantine, the, the Roman emperor, is in the process of adopting Christianity as, as its religion and turning its back a bit on its pagan roots, that there's a number of things that need to be standardized. First of all, we get uh, the, the council at Nicaea where they're trying to come together and standardize how it is that they see God. Along with that, if you're gonna do that, you have to have a scriptural canon to draw from so that your uh, priests and bishops uh, are all preaching from the same thing and they did not yet have a canon of scripture. So in order to do that, remember what they had at their disposal was, uh, first of all, the uh, uh, Greek Septuagint. It was, that was the translation from the Hebrew into the Greek done about 400 B.C. Uh, of, of the Old Testament. So they had that Greek translation of the Old Testament. They also had a stack of um, uh, Greek uh, writings from Paul and from uh, attributed to Matthew and Luke and all of those sitting around and those needed to be all put together. That task of canonizing scripture 
was given to uh, a man bo with, born by the name of Eusebius, who, as he became a uh, monk, dedicated this process, uh, took on the name Jerome, or he's known as Saint Jerome. In the last part of his life, the last few years, he lived in Bethlehem in a monastery and translated the Septuagint and the Greek manuscripts that they had at their disposal into the language of the vulgar, the, the common Latin-speaking people. This was going to be a Latin translation uh, that they called the Vulgate. Now, it's in this translation process that as Jerome is sitting down to translate the words of Paul, the words of Jesus, uh, even the words of uh, uh, the, the Pentateuch, uh, of Je Genesis and Exodus, he's got to make some decisions about what words he's going to use uh, in Latin to express what it is that he's reading in a Greek text or in a Hebrew text. Uh, in, now, that that's not as easy as it might sound. A lot of these translations aren't going to be a word-for-word -word, uh, translation. Uh, for instance, if I was going to try and translate into uh, another language uh, the word uh, poetry, <laughs> poetry itself might be, poetry might mean a dirty limerick, poetry might be a Dr. Seuss rhyming set of things, it might be the Psalms. Poetry might also be Shakespeare. So you're trying to say, just because words are put together and technically they're all poetry, how do they fit in the context of what's trying to be said in terms of what I'm translating? So if that makes sense, then, then what we're talking about is that uh, St. Jerome then had to make some decisions as he's looking at... Um, decisions that he's making about how he's going to render certain words from from the Greek into Latin. And I want to talk about two specific ones that continue to have a massive impact, I think, on, on our uh, scriptural and doctrinal understanding of the gospel. Uh, and I'm going to call it a mistranslation. So mistrans mistranslation number one. In, in the writings of Paul, especially in 1 Corinthians, Jerome is going to be reading along and he's going to see that Paul is talking about the word love. Now, in the word love in Greek, as we know, can have two forms. It, it has uh, agape or philios. Uh, philios being more romantic. Agape was a little harder to translate because in this context, agape means uh, a godlike love, which is a is a is a feeling of love. It's a nature of love. It is that is who God is. If we look at uh, John 15, for instance, uh, John isn't saying that God feels love or that God does loving things. John is going to say God is love. God is agape. God is the embodiment of a loving nature. And he loves, and because of that, he loves his enemies. He loves those that love him. He loves little children. He, he loves the poor, but he also loves the rich. You know, he loves the, the people that uh, drowned at the time of Noah. God is agape, and, and agape is God. Uh, 
Now, it's interesting that uh, for Jerome, as he's translating most of the time in 1 Corinthians, when he comes across the word agape, he will translate it as love. Then he does a very interesting thing when we get to 1 Corinthians 13. He's going to make a change. And we can only guess as to why it is that, that he did it, but here's what he did. In 1 Corinthians 13, when he's talking about the gifts that are present in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, and that every member of the body of Christ has a gift. And then he's going to say, but now let's look at the greatest gift. And then he's going to get to, and that's in chapter 12. In 13, he's going to say, and you know what? Even though I be a, a tinkling cymbal or a sounding brass, I, I, sounding brass meaning an echo of uh, acoustically of, of a sound or tinkling cymbal, you can hear it clearly. And even though I give my body to be burned, he says, if I have not, and the word was agape, I'm nothing. And instead of, instead of translating the word agape into love, as he had done previously, he translates it into, if I have not charity, I am nothing. And the rest of, of 1 Corinthians 13, he's going to use the word charity over and over and over. Charity never fails. Uh, the greatest of these, uh, faith and hope, but the greater of these is charity. And every time that word is agape, it means love. Now, here's the disservice that I think that translation does. Uh, one of the things that is believed that Jerome was doing is that in the uh, in looking at a, as an official member of uh, the, the emerging church under the direction of Constantine that they were looking for ways uh, and they were solidifying actually worship in the church while you've got to go to the church. Uh, now the difference between charity and love is that charity then as it is kind of seen as charity now. Charity comes closer to almsgiving, to taking care of the poor which in and of itself is, is a great thing and a, an important thing for a Christian to be involved in. We're supposed to be charitable people. But that sense of charity is something that is limited to an action that the rich or the more well-off or the higher-born are doing for the lesser people, the rich for the poor, for uh, the kings for their servants. They're doing charitable acts for people that can't do something on their own. It becomes an action. The difference then, without parsing this, the difference is that with charity, it's something I do. Agape is something I am. God has done charitable acts, it would seem, but he is agape. He is love. And so in doing, in framing that as charity, he was actually changing that sense of what Paul was trying to say, that love never fails. God never fails. Uh, it's God's love that continues for the rich, for the poor, for enemies, because that's his nature. And it was really a call to us to be changed and slowly transformed into people with God's nature 
not simply uh, doing charitable acts. There are a lot of people that may do charity and not be very godlike people, but they do it to be seen or they do it to to simply uh, get ahead or for some other, maybe even out of anger uh, or out of frustration or out of habit or tradition. They may do charitable things. They may do charity, but they're not yet become agape. They're not yet become love. So in some ways, that minor translation by Jerome sitting there in Bethlehem was was uh, almost dumbing down a little bit what Paul was trying to say about the importance of becoming godlike, because faith and hope are important, but becoming like God, becoming godlike, and incorporating that into our nature was far more important. Uh, and and it, this became so important that a thousand years later, when William Tyndale is, try, is now going to translate from the Vulgate into English. He gets to 1 Corinthians 13 and he says, no, no, agape. Uh, the, what he's saying is agape never fails. Love never fails. It's not about charity. And he was actually pushed back by Sir Thomas More, who at that time was trying to protect the church. And so... Sir Thomas More, even though um, Tinsdale was going to translate it in his version of God is love and and love never fails, agape never fails, Sir Thomas More was protecting the church, and he was a little afraid that if we're going to go love, then we pull the, then we pull the church out of it. The church doesn't get to get involved in uh, directing charity or being in charge of charity. So that's why when we get to the King James version of the Bible that our King James Version doesn't read love never fails. It reads charity never faileth because Sir Thomas More was pushing back against Tyndale and siding with Jerome in the, in the Vulgate to make sure that that word remained charity because the church would have a hand in almsgiving and that you would, might have to go through the church and use the church and use a priest and use the bishop to do that almsgiving, to do the charitable acts. You needed the church to do charity. And what Tyndale was saying is you don't need the church to do charity. You need to become agape. You need to become love. Kind of fun. Okay, so that that is that's not too convoluted. That is the essence of what uh, the first uh, mistranslation I think that uh, Saint Jerome makes, going back in in time and then in his context, uh, mistranslating agape. That's number one. Here's number two, and it's had even a more profound effect, I think. In, in the way, even as Latter-day Saints, that we tend to look at uh, the Savior and, and even the covenant path, I think, is affected by the second change. In the, uh, when he gets to the book of Matthew, uh, and Jerome is looking at the words of uh, John the Baptist, and he has the Baptist uh, saying, uh, repent and be baptized. 
and this is in, I, I believe in Matthew 3, uh, the word uh, baptize, or, or the word uh, repent, is actually, the, is the, the word is metaneo. And metaneo, in, even in that context, means literally turn around. Turn around. It simply means I'm facing the wrong direction. I can quickly turn around and be washed. And, and in that case, along the shores of the uh, Jordan River, they were, going, they were supposed to turn around from their actions, which they could do quickly, turn around and then go into a mikvah go into and, and be ceremoniously washed so that by doing so they were then taking on the Christ they were going to go down into the water that simulated like go, Jesus going into the grave coming up new being washed anew this was all going to be in preparation because he says the kingdom of God is at hand and he's going to baptize you you know uh, but at this point, let's, let's turn around and be ceremoniously uh, washed in preparation because the kingdom is coming. Metaneo. Now, Jerome, again, sitting in Bethlehem, as he's translating this part, he has, again, the church uh, that is going to be utilizing the, this canon of Scripture, and they have a certain way now of looking at how the church is being organized and how it's going to be run on a day-to-day basis. And, and so what we get, uh, and then it gets uh, sharpened by uh, uh, St. Augustine just a few years later, this becomes very, a very powerful change because they're going to translate and they're going to inf- uh, uh, work with the word metaneo, and instead of being just simply turn around, what it says is, uh, in that early Vulgate version, it says, do penance and be baptized. Do penance. Now, if in order for me to be baptized, or in order for me to be cleansed of my sins, I now need to do penance, Wow, that, what that means is, who are you going to go to, to, uh, to do the penance with? And that's going to be a, a, a uh, priest. Who's going to pronounce what penance you need to do? A priest and the church. How are you going to know when you have done enough penance? The church and a priest. Uh, how are you going to know for what sins you need to do penance for? You're going to need a priest and the church. And so what it did is it suddenly took the action of turning around and seeing things differently and walking in a different path to suddenly taking this action and making it, instead of a change of heart or change of mind, it made it into a sin. And it made it into a sin so that it had to be sanctioned and protected by and organized by the church and that it couldn't be done without the church. That idea of do penance was incredibly damaging because it turned everything into a sin, a crime against God, administered by the church. Now, thousand years later, 
Tyndale is going to change that part too. Instead of do penance in the Vulgate, it's going to say repentance, repent, re, but it's still repentance. It's still redoing and paying a penalty or a cost for a crime. You're going to do, instead of do penance, it's repentance, and that repentance is still directed by the church. Uh, and it's going to be directed by the church or a, a churchly organization. It suddenly is raising any actions that we do that are contrary to God's will. It makes that a crime, and it makes sin a crime, rather than something that could be quickly turned around and move forward with a change of heart and then be washed clean. That's massive. Because that sense of the repentance is actually having its roots in that penance process. And even today, then, in most churches where repentance is a part of the process, in our church, in our faith tradition, where we're going to talk about repentance, we get caught up, for instance, in the in the uh, steps of repentance. As a, as a boy, I remember uh, growing up ha having to learn the seven R's of repentance, and you hadn't completely repentanced yourself until you had done remorse and regret and uh, restitution and, uh, and, for, and uh, informing the, the bishop. And, I mean, there was all of these... Um, uh, steps that had to be taken and it became a very formalized kind of thing and so often uh, having to be guessing what things in terms of my repentance process do I go to the bishop which thing repentance can I do on my own is it bad enough uh, and this idea of penance and repentance that we still struggle with now the idea of making a change of heart as a sin that, need, that is a crime that needs penance even goes into the way that we frame so often the atonement in terms of uh, uh, sins that had to be paid for uh, and, uh, and what most of the church in the Middle Ages seized on was the idea of penal substitution that is Christ having to pay a large enough penalty to pay for a large enough crime uh, and that would then settle the debt. It becomes a penance debt kind of thing, which I know is one way that we tend to frame uh, the atonement. All of this goes back to Jerome sitting in Bethlehem in about 350 A.D. translating texts into the Vulgate, drawing from the Greek drawing from the Hebrew, but then imposing into that what translators do. And that is to put that in context in a way that they would be understood in, the, in that world, but also having to use their own bias and their own sometimes motivations in terms of what particular word they will use to translate from another word. Isn't that amazing? We're grateful to have modern prophets. We're grateful to have uh, prophets that, as Joseph Smith said, can strive to understand the mind of the original prophet that spoke it, 
And sometimes that's different from the way translators translated it. That's why he, he would say we believe in the Bible as long as it's translated correctly because often it was not. And, and sometimes his, his uh, corrections to the Bible canon uh, ran afoul of, of some people, but he was trying to capture as best he could the original mind and heart of the original authors and bypass the translators who did, by and large, a magnificent job. People like uh, Jerome, people like Tyndale, uh, and others that worked so hard on Wycliffe and those trying to translate a monumental task, but still prone to error. Brothers and sisters, I, I pray that as we, as we look at these kind of things, that we take in context what we know, that we can see that there are uh, opinions that have woven themselves into the canon of Scripture. And that's why it's so often important that we read with our heart especially like in the Old Testament, where certain things in the Old Testament just don't feel very good, probably because there's something amiss there. Scripture, when we read the Word of God through inspired writers, will enlarge our soul. If we feel our souls contract a little bit, it's probably because there's something there that is a problem. Bear you my testimony that uh, the Scriptures are important but we need to be able to read with the scripture or with the spirit to be able to fully appreciate the power of what it is that we're reading and thank saint jerome in the process for all the good he did and recognize his errors and i leave that with you in jesus name amen and thank you for joining us for another monday morning class hope you enjoyed it if you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss, or if you had any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe uh, so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming, and we'll see you for another Monday morning class.